Sweet morning of music worship, huh? The Lord just uh, really stirred my soul and blessed me through that. And what a great transition video that was. That was uh, some of Capshaw's finest uh, reading the, uh, the text of First Timothy, uh, which uh, was an indication, in fact, a video that uh, Josh Barnes put together so expertly. It's an indication that we have a new series we're beginning this morning through First Timothy, uh, one that I'm calling The Good Confession which is uh, actually a phrase that comes right out of the book itself, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says to Timothy, uh, he said, you made the good confession in front of many witnesses. And that, in fact, was following the example of our Lord Jesus, whom we're told uh, in 1 Timothy 6, also made the good confession. So we're transitioning this morning into a new series in 1 Timothy. And uh, I have to tell you, I'm so encouraged by... The feedback, uh, just the comments from our First Things uh, series where we're looking at some of those foundational commitments. But I've been ready for the last couple of weeks to get back into a book of the Bible and kind of stay there for a while. Uh, I was trained in the, uh, well, I went to seminary in an area of the country in a particular uh, denomination where, where I was told it's okay to preach a topical message uh, topical series as long as you repent afterwards. So, so we've kind of, we're moving out and there's nothing wrong with preaching a topical series. We did that as a way to kind of establish a foundation for this uh, sort of a, a, a new uh, season in our church life. Uh, but I'm excited to get back, to get into First uh, Timothy and kind of stay there for a while. First Timothy, uh, as you may know, is, is often regarded as kind of this manual for how to do church. In fact, uh, a lot of the series that I've seen on 1 Timothy, they're called house rules as a way to kind of say, this is kind of how you, this is how you do church. This is the way to do church. 1 Timothy is the explanation of that. And while there are some of those, there are some of those uh, guidelines, of course, in there, uh, 1 Timothy really is more than anything, it's an urgent plea to a beleaguered Christian and also to the church continuing forward to recapture an accurate vision of God. This is what the book is all about. It's, it's, a, it's a plea for the church to recapture an accurate vision of who God is. Now, there are a lot of questions that will come up, and, and I hope to try to answer some of those from the text. I'll give you a few of those that, that will arise from this book. What are the false beliefs that, quote, destroy our faith? Now, if there are those things that we can believe that, that, that shipwreck our faith, I want to know what those things are, don't you? I want to know what they are. I want to make sure that I don't slide into believing those things. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? We'll talk about that. Does God want everyone to be saved? Now, this is actually what 1 Timothy says, that God who wants everyone to be saved, but that begs a lot of questions, doesn't it? If God wants everyone to be saved, then why isn't everyone saved? If everyone, we know that not everyone is saved. Not everyone professes Christ as Savior and Lord. So what does that actually mean? Who leads the church? Who leads the church? What roles can women have in the church? Is the Bible chauvinistic? Does the Bible condone slavery? We'll get to that as we move our way uh, through the book. Is it wrong to be rich? How should we treat our aging parents? So these, these are just a few of... But I would say, you know, very timely questions that will come up as we work our way through the text of Scripture. So, uh, but we're going to keep in mind that the larger point of the book is to help us to see the majesty and glory of the living God, the one that the Apostle Paul calls in this book, 
the immortal, the immortal, invisible, only God. And we're going to see also the beauty and sufficiency of Christ's work for us. So let's pray and we'll get into the text. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have uh, 10,000 reasons and even more to sing your praises this morning. We thank you that we have been bought with a price, and it was a steep price, really an incredible price, the blood of your only son, so that we could be called the very children of God. Father, I pray this morning that as we open your word, you would help us. Pray that you would help us to, to learn what you want us to learn, to see what you want us to see, to respond in a way that pleases you and honors you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to unify us as a church as we lean in and we listen to a word from you. Have mercy on us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, back in 2006, I was in uh, a bookstore in the London Heathrow Airport, and uh, I was on my way from Chicago to Johannesburg, South Africa, and I think they've actually fixed this, but at that time, in the early 2000s, you had to have at least a 10-hour layover if you're going to go through London Heathrow. So I had this 11-hour layover, and the thing about Heathrow, if you've ever been to the airport, is all the, the chairs have these metal armrests, so you can't even lie down. You have to kind of just sit there. And so I was course, I was getting bored. I was walking around. I stopped in this bookstore and I saw this book that was prominently displayed in the very front of the store. It was called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Maybe some of you have heard of this book. And uh, Dawkins is, is one of the best known leaders of what's called the New Atheism. And he'd written this book in 2006. And, and I knew what I was going to get. And, and not like I was stunned by, by what I was reading. But what did surprise me was just the anger that was manifested in the book. I wasn't surprised that he was trying to make these arguments for uh, the non-existence of God. But what did surprise me was just the level of vitriol in his words. How angry he was. Blasting Christians, calling them anti-intellectuals, wooden-headed, and even going so far as basically to say that Christians are dangerous to society. So I'm reading this and again I was a little taken aback by it. Well, the Apostle Paul was at one point in his life kind of like the Richard Dawkins of the first century. Now, it's not that he didn't believe in God. He, he believed in God very strongly so, but he didn't believe that Jesus was God. And in fact, saw the followers of Jesus as a real threat to society. So, as you know uh, from reading uh, the book of Acts, that the Apostle Paul then made it his mission to torment and at times even lead to the murder of those who would follow Jesus, those who were called the followers of the way. But what's fascinating, of course, is God took this violent Christ-hater, this vengeful leader, and by virtue of a blinding light, this literal meeting with the risen Lord Jesus, God brought Paul, he was named Saul at the time, to a place of repentance and faith, and he would become one of the foremost missionaries in the world, and also the author of more than a dozen books in the New Testament, including the one that we began this morning. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll cover verses 1 through 7. Uh, let me just read the greeting of verses 1 and 2. The text reads this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there's so much in just this greeting alone. 
Uh, first of all, we see that Paul was no self-appointed apostle. He was not somebody who decided all of a sudden that, you know, I'm going to be this, this apostle, a follower of Jesus. He was actually doing so, going out as an envoy of the Lord Jesus by the command of the Lord Jesus. So he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus. He was sent, called by the Lord Jesus. And then he says, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Lord. The phrase God our Savior looks back to the salvation that God accomplished through Jesus by Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then the phrase Christ Jesus our hope looks forward to the day when Christ will return in great power and glory. So before Paul has said anything to Timothy about theology or church leadership or correcting problems, before he's done anything like that, he very cleverly points to virtually everything God has done and will do to save his people. As we're going to see in a minute, this is critical for Timothy. Timothy was a, a, a man who was a young man who was struggling mightily. He was a man that Paul left in charge at this, this church in Ephesus, which was one of the greatest cities in the world at the time. Home, uh, it was a city full of idol worshipers, um, false gods. And Paul will tell Timothy to stay there, as we'll see in a minute, and to correct some things. But before he says anything along those lines, he encourages Timothy, even by virtue of of his greeting. Now here's why Paul addresses the letter this way. It's our first point this morning. Our hope in trials and the unevenness of this life is the past faithfulness and future grace of God in Christ. Our hope in trials and the unevenness of this life is the past faithfulness and future grace of God in Christ. Remember, Paul didn't start this letter with this notion that, you know, hey, how am I going to start this whole thing out? Hey, Timothy, how you doing? What should I, what's up, Timothy? No, it wasn't like that. He knew, this was very intentional. This greeting was very intentional. He starts this for, for a purpose. And he knows that Timothy will need this encouragement right away. When we think about, when you think about messed up churches in the first century, uh, what's the first one that comes to your mind? It's probably Corinth, isn't it? Right? We know, we know a little bit about the church at Corinth. Rampant sexual sin and sexual scandal. There was racial uh, division at the leadership level. There were all kinds of issues going on. There, were, there was this great sort of chasm between the rich and the poor. All these things were going on. That was the, the situation at Corinth. It was a really messed up church. Well, the situation at Ephesus wasn't that much better, really. It wasn't that much better. Things had gone really poorly uh, as, uh, almost immediately after Paul left Timothy there to lead. And uh, we know that Timothy had some real problems. So Paul's reminder to Timothy, even through the greeting, even through the greeting, was this. You're not alone in this. This God who has been faithful to you in the past, this God who has redeemed your life from the pit, this God who has brought you to saving faith is the same God who will see you through even in the midst of these trials. He is our hope. He saved you by his love and mercy, and he will sustain you by his grace. And this is really, we see this rhythm throughout the scriptures, don't we? Looking back at God's faithfulness and looking forward as we just sang about, looking forward to his continued mercy. And I know this is important for all of us. I know some of you, even this morning, are going through some stuff. Pain, uh, perhaps, uncertainty. Maybe you don't know what's just around the corner for you. Maybe there's 
relational conflict in your life. Maybe you're, you're struggling with loneliness. Some of you, I know, even this morning, are going through some stuff. We all are on some level. We need the encouragement of God's faithfulness. This word written to Timothy and for the church at Ephesus is entirely relevant to us. And in fact, it is written to us as well. It would be a reminder necessary to Timothy uh, because, again, Timothy was under great duress. Now, who was this guy, Timothy? Well, one day as Paul was traveling during his second missionary journey, so Paul took at least three of these journeys and church planning journeys, he, one day he wandered into this city called Lystra, which was a little town in what we know is, is Turkey today. And he's in this town. He meets this young guy named Timothy who's probably, we don't know for sure, maybe 19, 20 years old at the time. And the Apostle Paul and Timothy strike up this friendship, this, this unique friendship. Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And so his father would not have been real fond of Timothy following the way, following Jesus. Uh, but, but Timothy did have this rich heritage passed down from his grandmother uh, Lois and his mother Eunice, both of whom knew the scriptures well. So, so Timothy, Paul meets this guy Timothy. And Timothy, this young man, he knows the scriptures well. He knows the scriptures well because his mother has been faithful to teach him. It shows you the influence that a godly mother can have. He knows the scriptures well, um, but he doesn't know Jesus. He's not a follower of Jesus. He's not recognized the preeminence, the deity of Jesus. And so he spends all this time with, with Paul. And after a while, he actually comes to faith in Christ. Turns from his own self-reliance and, and comes to be a follower of Jesus. And then he joins Paul on these, these mission trips, these, these church planting endeavors. Well, as they would travel from one town to another, of course, they're spending a lot of time together. So Paul is discipling him. He's shepherding uh, Timothy. And so Paul eventually gets to a place where he calls Timothy my true son in the faith. And some of you know, some of you can relate to how this works, where a spiritual relationship, those who are part of the believing community, our first family, actually become deeper. Those relationships become deeper and stronger than our unbelieving biological family. This is what happens. These two become very, uh, very close. And to this true son in the faith, Paul says in verse 2, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now again, I want you to keep in mind, this greeting was intentional. Uh, the Apostle Paul was brilliant. He was a brilliant, he had a brilliant mind. He studied under Gamaliel, who was a, a Pharisee, but, but known as the sort of foremost expert in Jewish law. So Paul was well-schooled, but he wasn't just book smart. He was also street smart. So here's a guy who could walk through Cabrini Green and, and not bat an eye. It's one of the roughest areas of Chicago back in the day. Or bedford Stuy in New York City. Here's a guy who could go through those areas. I don't know what it is around here. Decatur, maybe. A guy who could go through Decatur, right? And he was unafraid. But whatever it was, he, he could go through these, these areas and he, he was not afraid. He was street smart. He had savvy. And so when he writes this greeting to Timothy, he's actually appealing to both his Jewish heritage, but also his Christian conversion. I love what uh, theologian and historian J.N.D. Kelly writes. He says, the apostle starts with the traditional Greek salutation of grace, charis. He ends with a traditional Jewish greeting of peace, shalom. And he inserts mercy, elios, to make it a distinctively Christian blessing. From the very beginning of this epistle, it's full of Christ. So this letter is going to be about, yeah, okay, who leads the church and how do we treat our aging parents and all those things, that's true. But this letter is is Christocentric. It's about Jesus. 
and his finished work. It's about Jesus and all he accomplished for us on our behalf. Now look how the letter continues, verses 3 and 4. As I urged you, it's actually a military term we'll talk about it in a minute. When I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Most of the letters in the New Testament, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are, are referred to as occasional letters. And what this means is they, was, they were written to address a specific occasion, right? Something that was going on in the life of the church at that particular time. Well, the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus, they were also occasional letters. They were written to address specific things going on in the life of the church. And here, Paul writes, Timothy instructs him, among other things, to, to address this group of men. This happens in a variety of locations in the first century. You had these false teachers who would creep in. And Paul writes them to address a group of men who were teaching false doctrine and then distracting the church from her mission. As is often the case, those who taught false doctrine would attract quite a following. And so people would, they would listen to all these new ideas and they would start to, to follow these other men and then they would, they would be sidetracked and they would lose, uh, lose their allegiance to the Apostle Paul. And so what happened was Paul and Timothy, they went to Ephesus together to plant a church and they would stay there around two years or longer. And this would put the writing of this church around A.D. 62 to 64, somewhere in there. And then after a while, Paul moved on to plant other churches. But he left Timothy there in Ephesus to provide leadership and stability in the church. And now, the church encountered all kinds of problems. And, and rather than spend the first sort of message just talking about all the historical background, I want to sort of uh, unfurl some of that historical data in each, in each of the messages. But there are all kinds of things that were going on, including the false teaching um, there were widows who were being neglected. There were, there were women who were trying to usurp authority over their husbands. Uh, there was this, again, there, was all, there were all kinds of things going on. But the greatest problem is that, that some of these teachers were teaching a different doctrine. Literally a heterodox. You've heard of the, the, the word orthodox. This is what we're striving for, orthodoxy. This was heterodoxy, which was a different doctrine. It was literally a different kind of instruction. It was another gospel. And instead, they had abandoned the gospel of grace in favor of talking about myths and genealogies, Paul says. The myths were probably uh, Jewish stories that were loosely based on the Old Testament, but then they had been embellished. So someone would take a story from the Old Testament and what they knew of the Hebrew scriptures, and, and they would then embellish that and add all kinds of other things, and they were debating these things. And other people were focused on uh, genealogies. You ever seen the commercial for uh, Ancestor.com? Probably seen this. Uh, it's a it's a site that you can I don't know pay ninety nine dollars or whatever, and it tells you all about your your family's history and tell you you know kind of where your family came from. Well, apparently these folks at Ephesus were trying to find out just how directly they were connected to some of the Old Testament patriarchs, and so they're having these debates and these discussions. They know I'm actually closer related to Abraham. I, I have a more direct lineage, and so they're doing all these things. And they'd lost sight of the true gospel of grace. And look at the last part of verse 4 again. This stuff, he says, promotes, Paul says, promotes speculations rather than stewardship 
from God that is by faith. Now, here's the second thing that, that Paul wants to communicate. It's our second point this morning. When peripheral issues begin to dominate discussions among believers, the gospel gets pushed aside and God's people suffer greatly. Peripheral issues. Peripheral issues. These are secondary, tertiary, tertiary things. Things that, that, that weren't really essential, but they wanted to make them essential. Well, I want to find out just what all these things mean. I want to look at the Old Testament. I want to embellish these stories and make something out of them that was never intended. They were, the gospel become pushed aside because of all, the, all these peripheral discussions. And I think we know, don't we, this is not just a first century problem, is it? Peripheral discussions, non-essentials, dividing the church. How often does this happen in churches today? We see it in small groups that get derailed by one person, one very vocal person who always wants to talk about the same thing, monopolize the discussion. We see it uh, in the, on the internet and Facebook where people get into these protracted, these long debates and discussions, sometimes going 30, 40 comments long, rather than just sitting down with someone over coffee. They're going to go over this at one, it's just one comment after another. Sometimes people in their own family, had a man that I was trying to shepherd and disciple a number of years ago who got into this huge conflict with his son. He and his son could not get along at all. They couldn't stand each other. And I was noticing that he and that this guy and his son were having these long, long Facebook threads, these debates. And I went to him and, and, and I, he was a colonel in the military. I said, look, I, 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 let me just tell you, this is not working. This is not doing anything helpful. Take your son out for coffee or yogurt or whatever you want to do, but sit down with him. This is not helping. We see how these peripheral things can start going on Facebook. We see it in what one pastor I know calls single issue Christians. You know any single issue Christians? They have one thing. That's all they think about. They go to bed thinking about it. They wake up thinking about it. That's all they want to talk about. Maybe it's the age of the earth or some eschatological end times interpretation, modes of baptism, something. That's all they want to talk about. The single issue. It's happened to me so many times over the years that someone will rush down to me at the end of a sermon. They'll ask a question that had really nothing to do with what I was talking about. They say, I want to know about the meaning of the seventh bowl in Revelation. I say, why? <laughs> why do you, what's that going to do for you? Say, I need to know what Paul's thorn in the flesh felt. I say, what? Why is this a need to know thing? How's this going to help you in the way you shepherd your family? The way you love your wife sacrificially? The way you love your wife? The way that you engage your neighbor? Why? I mean, I'm not saying that these things are, you don't ever talk about these things. As you work through the text of Scripture and they come up, yeah, we're going to talk about these things, but they cannot be the focus. The focus must continue to be, as Pastor Adam said so well, Jesus, his perfect life, his substitutionary death for your sins, for my sins, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, his impending return, his current work alongside the Father even now, and how this work completes us from, or for, how it frees us from, rather, trying to earn our own way, frees us from fear and guilt and shame, all of those things. Philip Ryken, New Testament scholar who's the, now the president of Wheaton College, says this about this passage. He says, 
This is a warning not to major on minors. Not every spiritual discussion is equally beneficial as the Ephesians were starting to discover. Now this had already wrought havoc on the church. Look at verses 5 and 6. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now look at that. That's so important. There's a dangerous combination at work among these people. It's a dangerous one. It is arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance and ignorance. These people make these confident assertions. They're arrogant. Paul says but they have no idea what they're talking about. They have wandered into vain discussions. The phrase wandered away suggests not just a cluelessness. We all struggle with that sometimes, don't we? But a stubbornness. Not just a lack of knowledge, but a, a deep-seated stubbornness. They're like travelers who never reach their destination because they pay no attention to where they're headed. And I love uh, Simon Kistemacher has written a great commentary on 1 Timothy. I found this to be particularly moving. He says, the path which these people have taken is not even a detour. It is more like a dead-end street beyond which lies a swamp, in their case. The swamp of futile talk. Useless reasoning. Argumentation that gets nowhere. Yes, their vaunted learning has finally landed them in the no man's land of ceremonious subtleties. In the dreary marsh of ridiculous hair splitting. And listen to this. And the owner of the quagmire is Satan who heads the welcoming committee. In other words, if we allow the church to become a place where we argue and debate and fight over non-essentials, we're simply doing Satan's bidding as we lose sight of the centrality and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what happened. This is what's happened there. And this is scary stuff. It's not just some minor annoyance that Paul is addressing. These are people who would not be taught by anybody else but they insist on leading people away from the gospel truth. And Paul says, I urge you, Timothy, I urge you, deal with this, these people. In fact, he says, I left you there so that you may charge them. It, it's, this is a military term. It carries with it weight, urgency, authority. Paul calls for correction for those who are teaching another kind of doctrine and rebuke for those who are carrying on in unproductive discussions. But, now this is so important. There's a goal to that correction. There's a goal. Look at verse 5 again. Paul says, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. The aim, the telos in the Greek, the end goal, the completion of all confrontation is love. Now what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. The purpose or intent of all correction at any level is not simply to get someone else to do what we want them to do or to coerce someone to make decisions that we would make. It is to love that other person toward God. To love that other person toward God. To help that other person to experience the fullness of joy that comes from being reconciled to God. 
from being united in Christ in one mind, to steer that other person toward God, the, the very God in whom they can find the approval, the acceptance, the significance, the worth for which they are desperately seeking. This is really, isn't this why, I think, why we want to really major on minors, we want to lock into a particular area. It's because we want to try, try to find significance, right? We want to, we want to know something that, that someone else doesn't know. And I've told guys uh, that I've tried to disciple younger than I am in, in my ministry. I said, be careful of making, you know, so, supplying so much historical data that you become the hero rather than Jesus. Well, you know, the Jericho Road was actually four and a half miles long and it had potholes on either. And then you say, well, then that person who's preaching actually becomes the hero. Do you see how well he knows all this history? So be careful. The historical data is always meant to serve a purpose, and that is to magnify and exalt the risen Savior. So, so Paul is addressing these things, and he says the, the reason we're confronting is, we're, is love. This is why we do what we do. We love people. This is why we go about correcting. It's to show love to one another. There was a period of about seven years uh, where I was writing almost a weekly article uh, for the church that I served and then some other folks were reading it. And, and there was one week that I wrote a piece called Bruce Jenner and the Nature of Love. And I've never gotten so much feedback on an article. I got so much feedback on it. Some of it was angry. Some of it was supportive. But, it, but I was just, all I was trying to do was simply define, biblically speaking, love. Trying to show, okay, what actually is love from a biblical perspective? So much of what we see in the TV and TV or movies is actually what I would call a romanticized love. And it is, I love you because you make me feel blank. You make me feel beautiful. You make me feel worth something. You make me feel whatever it is. It's actually, it's actually about self-actualization, really. I love you because you, and you know, you, you remember some of the great lines of some romantic comedies, right? Um, you know, I love you because you make me a better man. You know, I love you because you do this or do whatever, right? That's actually a romanticized version of love where I love you because of what you can do for me. But biblical love is actually not ultimately about me. It, it's a strong affection, it's passion and so on, but it's ultimately an interest for another person's good. This is what biblical love is. To love someone the way that Paul describes is to have a deep desire and even to go to extreme lengths to see that person experience what's best for him or her. Maybe not even what he or she wants, but what's best. And sometimes that involves saying hard things that are said humbly and in love. Sometimes that involves, Paul says, correcting someone we love. But again, always the end goal is to love that person in such a way that they would see God. Here's the third point this morning, our final point. There is no greater act of compassion than to point people toward a right understanding of God, even if it's done through tears. And I say even if it's done through tears because it hurts sometimes, doesn't it? It hurts sometimes to say something to someone that we know is going to sting, but is actually for their good. And yet what we're doing is we're doing whatever we can humbly to help that person see God. See who God is the way he's revealed himself to be in scripture. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. 
And I was reminded of this the other day. I've got four kids and, you know, sometimes, I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes I call one kid by the wrong name, by the other person's name, you know. So I'll call one of my sons by the other son's name or one of my daughters by the other daughter's name. And the other day I called my, old, my oldest daughter, uh, Olivia, by her sister's name, Julia. And she said, Dad, you, you keep doing this. You, you just keep doing this over and over and over again. And, uh, and I said, I'm sorry. Look, it's not that I don't know who you are. It's just, I, you know, sometimes I do this. I said, will you forgive me? She said, no, I won't forgive you. I'm tired of this. <laughs> I, said, I said to her, I said, I'm really thankful that God doesn't treat me like you do. He forgives me when I repent. <laughs> she said, I'm, treatful, I'm thankful that God doesn't treat me like you do. He knows my name. <laughs> and, I, you know, and I was thinking at that time, even though I didn't really like the sarcasm, I didn't like kind of the, but I was thinking, she knows something about God here. She knows that he actually knows her on a personal level. She knows that, that, that God knows who she is and, and he cares about her. We're, we're trying to help people through love and with humility understand something of the nature of God. We want people to know that God, God as he has revealed himself to be faithful, gracious, holy, merciful, perfect and righteous. And when we love someone that way, we're actually seeking what's best for them. And that's the sort of love that Paul says flows from a pure heart. That's the love that flows from a pure heart. The love that desires from someone else a greater understanding of this incredible God who has rescued us. Paul says the aim is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He's simply saying the reason that one person confronts another is actually for the benefit of the one being confronted. You say, how do I know what true love looks like? Well, true love is a theological exercise. In fact, the Bible tells us what love looks like. We understand what love is by looking at God's example. John the evangelist wrote this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. God loved us so much that when we should have been written off for good, when we should have been cast away forever, he sent his only son to pay the penalty for our rebellion. That's love. That's the truest, most beautiful expression of love. God loved us so much that when, when he should have uh, forever left us consigned to the experience of his wrath, he said, no, I'm actually going to go after this person. I'm going to pursue relentlessly. And I'm going to bring him, I'm going to bring her to myself. That's the true picture of love. His love for us was sacrificial. It was generous. It was selfless. And Paul's point to Timothy is, when a church loves each other that way, they're willing to confront because they have God's glory and one another's best interest in mind. We're beginning a study this morning where we're going to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And let me say this. If you don't know that Jesus, will you come and talk to me at the end of the service? If, if you're just thinking, like, I don't feel like I'm loved right now. I don't feel like God loves me. I feel like God is against me. Will you come and see me? Uh, actually, I'll be out front with my wife. Will you come and see me so we can talk about the beauty of God's love? Let's pray.